Welcome to the DFS pregame show here on Roto Grinders. I'm Jordan Cooper, aka Blender Ed, Blender HD. If you want to follow me on Twitter, and it's Monday, it's Pie Day, and uh, we got uh, James McCool as usual. McCool Mondays with McCool, James McCool, the co-author with me on the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports. It's a 15-hour audio DFS masterclass that you can pick up at theoryofdfs.com. Give me those thumbs ups in the YouTube chat. I see you guys in there. Suki Singh, Matt Mears, Grant Brown. Good morning. Good morning, James. It's Pi Day. How do you celebrate Pi Day? Uh, I, I don't know. I might have Pi later. Maybe. How many? How many numbers of Pi can can you can you can you do by right by now. memory? Three point one three point one four one five nine. That's it. Yeah, that's about it for me. Also, <laughs> Pi. We could go. Let's see. 3.14159265359. And that's all that Google gives me right now. Yeah. It never ends. It's like DFS. It never ends. Never ends. And the longer term that you play Pi, the longer the uh, I, I was trying to do an ROI joke there, but I got nothing. You got nothing. You got nothing for 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 Pi. Well, uh, well, I I I I had some pie over the weekend. Good. Celebrated a bunch. It hit a MMA slate again, finally. So I'm, I, I made uh, what thirty five thousand on on Saturday. I don't know. You didn't? It, were you even paying attention? No, of course. No, not. of course I was. Of course I I saw that you uh, didn't. You get a, a life a live final seat too. Yeah, well, it's not rich. It's, it's well, they're a doing final, it's a. Final. Well, no, they are doing a final. Just it's 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 series of of rounds. So okay. essentially, seven there's 70 final qualifiers, then 70 in round one go down to 30, then 30 in round two go down to 10, and those 10 then go to wherever that it's to be determined. I actually really like that format. I, I like that format a lot. Uh, well, I'd rather just go right away. I mean, that's to me personally. People were shocked. Some people on Twitter were shocked. It's like, oh, I didn't know you. you I thought you don't like live final qualifiers. So when said i said i don't mind taking shots i'm not that much i mean i'm not like that that nitty but it's typically going to be number one overlay which there wasn't uh or if it's in in a spot that i think that i have considerable enough edge mm-hmm. and it's it's inexpensive i mean the i mean the lot what i do in mma is i typically play uh, anywhere from 75 to 150 lineups for the large field GPP. Yeah. Of the 100K to first, if it's like a $15 entry and it's a large enough slate, like the, the uh, Saturday was a 14 game slate. I'll play 150. Yeah. 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 Like uh, if it's a 11 fight slate and a $25 entry, maybe I'll only play 50 lineups. Mm-hmm. Right. Because there's, uh, there's only so many ways to be unique. You can be, but you'll, you'll have a lot of high variance lineups. Yeah. And, and then I, I hand build three lineups, and I use that for smaller field stuff. So typically, I would play the five fifty five, the two hundred three max, the one hundred single entry, and then mix in the three thirty three. There's a thirty three dollar like three max. There's a fifty dollar single entry. So I'll like I'll try to even it out so all three lineups have about the same amount of dollars yeah. down. Like the 555 lineup is obviously going to be a little bit higher. Uh, they they ran the 555, but they also ran a $400 qualifier. So I played that instead. And ah. then in all three lineups, I played the $20 qualifier. So it's like a 350 entry contest for 20 bucks to qualify for this uh, MMA championship. So what I do is those three lineups. Outside, I don't outside of the large field, like the largest field. I just enter those three in like literally like every contest in the lobby. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a secondary, like a ten, like I'm showing on the screen, the 10K, which was like the, the, the it says the throwdown, but it's like the second contest because the first one filled. Mm-hmm. And then they have like the $8 hook for 5K to first. And it's like, okay, I'll $24 to all my three lineups in there. Then the $5 is like 5K to first. So I'll like three lineups into there. And then anytime I see like a $5, 237-man single entry, I throw one of the lineups into there. I put it into like triple up, all three lineups into triple ups and double ups. So like those are my three main lineups. And then I build a 150 set or whatever, Mm -hmm. 50 to 150 set 
otherwise. So one of those three lineups that I hand-built uh, pretty much won every contest that it was in, right, with 589.32, and it actually had a losing fighter. Because the losing fighter put up, like, more points than half of the half of the, the cheaper winning fighters because mm-hmm. it was one of those slates where the, the underdogs were not all that, uh, in, uh, you know, that, that uh, entice, enticing yeah. because – we had all the 9K fighters were like minus 250 favorites. So uh, this this is the one guy. Uh, he was one of the more higher owned underdogs, but uh, he smashed in the first round and then lost the next two rounds. So he mm. still was able to get like four takedowns, two reversals, tons of control time. So 60, he actually scored, Semmelsberger was the winner and Semmelsberger scored 62, right? Mm-hmm. So the loser, losing fighter actually scored more than the winning fighter yeah. on that slate. But the key to me, the key to the slate was uh, fading the highest stone favorite and fading the highest stone under. Yeah. The highest stone favorite was a $9,600 main event, five round fighter, uh, which I don't know. I He was going to be, it, it was 45% owned, but just because it's a five round fight doesn't mean, doesn't mean anything. I mean, people overvalue the extra two rounds. Yeah. And uh, Ankle Eye have pretty much only got one takedown. And uh, it was like sta- it was a very slow stand-up affair. So I was under on him, and then McKinney was was wildly. I mean, he was like 41 percent owned. Yeah, in the large field, he was forty four percent owned as a seventy two hundred dollar underdog coming off of two first round knockouts. Okay, right. So like the scores, his game log looks great, and uh, a massive step up in competition against Drew Dober. Uh, so people just like it was hard to find underdogs you liked on this slate, and so many, uh, so many attracted to McKinney, and it it almost it almost killed me. Like I I was barely if I look at my exposures here, like I only had like thirteen percent McKinney because I had him as like the most overowned underdog on the entire slate. Yeah, uh, and I played a bunch. I played a ton of Drew Dober, right? His opponent at nine thousand against him because. We talk about it in the course, James, right? Direct leverage. Direct. Right. If McKinney, if McKinney, if you wanna, if you wanna fade a 41% owned underdog, if he fails, 41% of the lineups are dead to first place. Yep. But if what correlates with him failing? Drew Dober winning and hopefully putting up a good enough score. And uh, I almost got killed there because uh, Terrence McKinney came out and within the first uh, 90 seconds of the fight, knocked down Drew Dober twice. <laughs> right literally came out need uh, need him in the face that dropped him right i think he got need in the face twice it, 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 terrence mckinney almost put up 130 points within 90 seconds and i'm watching that fight going well uh, obviously i'm dead yeah right right i barely have any of the 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 44 owned underdog and in either of my three single entry lineups i didn't play him at all right uh but of course the number one concern, if you listen to the ground and pound here on uh, on, on Roto Grinders, is that McKinney's an unproven, you know, a, a unproven but still a prospect. Mm-hmm. Massive step up in competition. Drew Dober uh, went three rounds with Islam Makachev, who's de facto probably going to be the champion. Uh, and Drew Dober has never been finished in his entire career. Okay. So, and then McKinney, we've never seen past, past, he's had a grand total of like two minutes in the, in the cage, in the UFC. Yeah. Right. Because he's had quick it, like that. So it's like, people are going to overvalue that. It's like, who knows if this gets past the first round. I don't know. What does McKinney have anything left? Well, he didn't even get to this. He didn't even get to the second round. McKinney, after he couldn't finish Drew Dover, essentially gassed out. Yeah. Right. It's like three minutes into the fight after flurry or whatever and down and Grant Drew Dober got up and then basically McKinney was dead on it on his feet. Yeah. And then got clocked a couple of times, got knocked down, and that was it. Yeah, they I mean I think it was out on his feet. So it went from one side. So in, in the span of two minutes, uh, Terrence McKinney scored 38 fantasy points, <laughs> which is a lot. Yeah, or it's that's a lot for 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 a round for for a wrestler, yeah. like that's like six takedowns and stuff. 
So uh, some people on Twitter are like, oh, you got lucky with that. It's like, well, no, that's why you play Drew Dope. Yeah, who right? cares if you got lucky? You set yourself up in, in a position to where if you get lucky, you get paid a lot. You get paid a lot, right? That's the whole point, point right? That's the important, and, important point of DFS, man. People like, whenever somebody says, oh, well, this person got lucky, this person got lucky. It's like, one, if it's a bad lineup and they got lucky, who cares? They still put together a lineup and got lucky and won. And that's what you are also trying to do. You're just put, trying to put together a lineup that has to get less lucky than they got. In order and still to make the same win. amount of money, though. And that's still the, make the same amount. amount. Right. So it's it's just all about whenever somebody says, oh, well, how did how did you know to pick this player? How did you know to pick this player? It's like, I, I was just picking the one that would pay me the most if it, if things went my way. That's all. Right. Well, that's, I mean, I, I was having a conversation with when Guido Canetti, the Chris Moutinho, Guido Canetti fight, Canetti uh, basically knocked, I mean, they stopped the fight with Moutinho on his feet because he wasn't even defending himself at some point. Canetti was 10% owned. He scored 101 points as a $7,600 underdog. And obviously you could see here, He's in my he's in my winning, you know, single yeah, entry. If you yeah. took my lineup here, I have Dober, Maverick, Brundage, Kennedy, Fletcher, Yadong, uh, who was Yadong was a huge favorite over Moraes to probably knock him out in the first round. But like it's like, oh, you got lucky with Kennedy. It's like it's not about it's not about what's most probable. It's about what's most profitable. So I take a look at my my MMA odd sheet. So this is what this is what I put together for MMA on every slate. So I put down all the fighters, all the salary. Then I put down the win odds, the money line odds for the win, for the inside the distance and the round one. And I put the projections from three different sources in here as well. And the ownership from three different sources and average that out, okay? The most correlative metrics to 100 plus point scores are inside the distance betting lines and round one finishing betting lines. So obviously, if you win in round one, you're going to score at least 90 because that's the minimum you can. Uh, but fighters that score 100 points are more likely going to finish inside the distance than in a decision. OK, so I, all I'm doing is comparing those lines linearly, which isn't even the best way to do it, but linearly to the ownership. So Guido Canetti was plus 350 inside the distance, plus 650 in round one, okay? He finished in round one, okay? Plus 650 equates to an implied probability of 13%, mm-hmm. right? Well, he was 10% owned. So that's positive left. That's, that, yes, it doesn't happen that often, but, it, but he's owned less than the probability of it happening, right? Terrence McKinney, on the other hand, Terrence McKinney, was a plus 155 money line underdog, right? Which is a 39% implied probability of winning, right? Now, winning doesn't mean you score 100 points, right? Just winning is winning. It could be any score. Mm. He was plus 220 inside the distance. So that's 31%. 450 in the first round. That's 18%. I I had him... His aggregate at 32% owned. He came in at 41% owned. So he, you would have had even, you said you had 13%, right? I had third, I, I ended up exposed 13%. He was in very other contrarian loss. You would have had less if you'd have known that he was 44. You probably would Yes, I actually would have had less of him. That's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. And then yeah. Drew Dover, on the other hand, was, I had him as 20% owned. He came in at 18%. Of course, he's more expensive. He's 9,000. 42% inside the distance, 24% in round one. So, like, I take a look here between Terrence McKinney and, like, uh, like someone like Guido Canetti, who's 400 more. It's like, there's no reason why McKinney should be 41% owned and McKin- and Canetti to be 10% owned. Based on the betting lines, what is the more likely scenario? McKinney wins via knockout or Canetti wins via knockout? McKinney, of course. But not for he's not worth 41%. Right. So it's it's not a matter of what's most probable. People go into MMA and they go, well, who's most uh, most probable to get a, a hundred plus point score? Who's gonna, you know, like Miranda Maverick, I had in my in my winning lineup. Okay. And I had the most, I had tons of her, 35% of her. I had 45% Carl Roberson, and he got killed in the first round. So like 
a lot of those lineups were dead. Mm-hmm. That's why my other my other two lineups out of those three that I hand built had Carl Roberson in it. So that's why those two lineups did not do well. But if we take a look here, Miranda Maverick was plus 255 inside the distance. She had one of the highest inside, uh, lowest inside the distance probabilities of any of the favorites on the slate. She was mm-hmm. 9,400 because she was a huge favorite, minus 360 favorite over Sabina Mazo. Okay. For 200 more, you get Ankalaev, who's the main event favorite, who's going to be, you know, four, I have him at 47% on. Okay. His Ankalaev's win odds probability is 87%. His inside the distance probability is 48%. And his round one probability is 24%. Okay. Well, he's going to be 47% owned. Miranda Maverick is 78% chance to win. 28% inside the distance and 17% in round one. I had her at 17% owned. She came in at 17% owned. Mm-hmm. So Ankalaev is mm, not twice as more likely, but I mean, probably 80% more likely to finish inside the distance. He is fifty about 50% more likely to finish in the first round. Those are the two bare basic things that I use for the probability of a hundred plus point score. Okay. So for Ankalaev being what? 80% more likely to finish inside the distance and 50% more likely to win around one. Why is, why is he three times more owned than Miranda Maverick? Ankalaev, if it was an efficient market, Ankalaev would be like 40, 40 ish percent owned, like 40, maybe 42% owned. And Miranda Maverick would be, 26% 26% owned and then yeah. be like, okay. Cause if I change that, for instance, if I look at that, that's what my rating score is. It's judging leverage. So I had Miranda Maverick as the highest probability of scoring hundred plus points versus her ownership. Mm-hmm. But if I change her ownership, if I put, let's say 60 here, right. To make her ownership 32%, she would be the worst play on uh, of all the nine K fighters. Right. It's not a matter of what I think will happen is that at 32% ownership, she doesn't finish enough time to warrant that ownership. Yeah. Right. So that's why her rating comes up higher. And that's why Ankalaev's wasn't, I had Maverick higher, Semmelsberg higher, Yadong the same for cheaper. I had Dober and Pereira similar for weight for a much cheaper for 600, 700 less. So that's why I, didn't play as much uh, Ankalaev as as other people. I mean, like all these guys. I mean, look at how big these favorites are. Like all I need is a, just a boring fight out of a five round fight mm-hmm. at forty seven percent. You know, he, he came in at forty five percent owned. McKinney came in at forty one percent owned. You know, you know what the you know what the the correlation between Ankalaev and McKinney is very high. You have the ninety six hundred dollar favorite and a seventy two hundred dollar underdog. If you're going to play a $9,600 favorite, you're probably going to need some cheap underdog. And uh, pretty much everyone, you either played McKinney. McKinney came in at 41. Uh, Silva came in at 23. And Fletcher came in at 24. So there were a lot of Ankalaev McKinney lineups out there. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't McKinney, probably Silva or then Fletcher, right? But how many Maverick Fletcher lineups are there? Right. Not as Not as many. Right. You still need a cheap underdog, though. Right. So a lot of them, there are probably twice as many Maverick McKinney lineups because Maverick is still 9,400 and you need a cheap underdog. So if I'm going to play Maverick, maybe I want to play Fletcher instead to get even lower ownership. Mm -hmm. But if you're not playing Maverick or Ankalaev, you probably don't even have to play McKinney or Fletcher at all. Right. And then you then you should be using like the mid range. That's why I had a lot of Trevin Jones. I had a lot of Guido Canetti. I had a lot of JJ Aldrich, right? A lot of people went to Damon Jackson. I had a whole bunch of the Roberson Roundtree fight. I was playing a lot of a lot of uh, balanced type of lineups. But the question is in, in MMA, this is the main reason why uh, I barely care about like analyzing fights in MMA. When the R squared of like the inside the distance to 100 point scores is 0.8, mm-hmm. 
why do I care? What, like, why do I care? Right. Right. Now, obviously, I listen to the Ground and Pound, our MMA show. I, I read the expert survey here at Roto Grinders. And I'm like, oh, and also, obviously, I've been playing UFC for a year and a half. So I know a lot of these fighters anyway. I know that like Alex Ferreira is a kickboxer. His minus 160 inside the distance. He's not wrestling to get a victory. He's he's gonna he's going to knock someone out. While while someone like uh, like Song Yudong, same thing. He's not a wrestler. Damon Jackson's a wrestler. AJ Fletcher's a wrestler. And in, on drafting scoring, wrestlers are a little bit more favored uh, for for ceiling scores than mm-hmm. than pure like stand up knock you out type of fighters. Because if they don't get pretty much if they don't get the first round knockout or at least the second round ground and pound. Like their scores typically suck because they're not getting ground control or takedowns or anything, but like that's already ref- uh, reflected in the projection as well. Right. So I don't even have to care that much about it. So all I'm doing in MMA is saying, how often does this? How often does the betting market say that this guy or girl finishes the fight inside the distance? And what does that number compare to the owners? And that determines the, the entire the total leverage of my line. So it doesn't mean that's why you take a look here. It doesn't mean I don't have any McKinney. McKinney's still plus two. I mean, he still has, if I take a look here, McKinney still has a 31% chance of winning inside the distance, an 18% chance of winning in the first round, and he's only 7,200. So yes, in my three hand-built lineups, I just fade the most over-owned underdog on the slate, but I could fit him in lineups that still work, right? right? If I go to some of my, my uh, let's see, go to my McKinney lineups, like, what's my highest leverage McKinney lineup, right? A lineup without Ankalaev, and I have Pereira, Roberson, Mirzakhanov, Moutinho, Dalt. Yeah, a pretty, like, no 9K fighters in here, right? So my, my, my projection is my leverage score, so 6.35 on leverage. This is probably a unique lineup, even at 50,000 or under five dupes. Here's another one with... Both Maverick and J.J. Aldrich was also barely owned. Mm-hmm. So I look through these. So I try to just build lineups that have the appropriate amount of leverage for the large field contest. And I aim primarily, not necessarily for uniques, but for under five dupes. Right. Uniques are a bonus for me. Uh, under five dupes on a slate that pays out 100K to first with all the other spots as well, it typically pays out around 40K. So, like, I don't mind all my lineups having the expected value of going to 40K. So, like, if I look on results DB, like, you'll see my 150 lineups, I only had 29 uniques. Mm-hmm. But I had 113, I believe, or 118 under five. So, I'm fine with that. If I have 118 out of 150 under five, to me, I'm good. I, I, I gear myself more towards that number than specifically getting unique. I could have, there are plenty of ways for me to have gotten unique. I could have left a thousand on the table and a lot of lineups, but based on the odds of this slate with all these heavy favorites, mm-hmm. typically those aren't the slates where uh, lineups that have a thousand on the table win. The win equity of those lineups go dramatically down, right? Because we have all these 9K favorites. Most likely there's going to be two guys up here that put up 110, 120, and there's going to be a ton of these cheap underdogs that are just going to lose. Yeah. So the likelihood of a lineup with that leaves that like, oh, none of the 9K guys does well. And like two of the two or three of the low underdogs also put up 100 points. Mm-hmm. That does happen every once in a blue moon, but it's unlikely. So for the, to get unique, I'm going to have to build a lot more of those types of lineups. And I thought the win equity was too low. In comparison to the the, pro, the probability of being them them being unique, so I'm like, I'll just try to make as many under five lineups. Which by not playing as much Ankalaya, playing a ton of Maverick and Semmelsberger, and playing very little of McKinney, I knew I was going to get. So just just wow. going over my 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 MMA thought process. You don't you don't need to know anything about MMA, right? Really, to win at this. Like you can't even like like James, you can you you pretty much can't even make a model. Do you even make a model for UFC? I mean, I think that there are people that are trying right now that I that I respect and think that uh, 
if that I think could do it, but I'm not sure how well you could do it. And the reason for that is mostly just that the data is really, really unreliable. Right, like we know that the the significant strikes data, like if you were going to build a model, you have to be able to count significant strikes. You have to be able to have good, clean data that is reliable, and we just don't have reliable data for MMA. Um, well, why do you so? Why is it not reliable? Because it's subjective. Right. I I, I knew. I, I'm asking. I'm doing one of those. I asked the question, and I already know the. Answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's subjective, it, and we see it all the time on Twitter, where like there's a serious disagreement in terms of who had the actual significant strike advantage and, and the numbers of significant strikes and everything like that. So if I'm going to build something, I want reliable data. It's, um, it's something where if you build out a model and you trust the significant strikes that out there, you're just going to be wrong uh, because it, it's, it's subjective. It's completely subjective. And when you have coaches or when you have judges out there that are determining winners and stuff like that that's another subjective thing there's just so much subjectivity when it comes to the sport that building out a model for it is is you can do you can there's people out there that can do well but i don't think there's people out there that can do uh significantly better than what the average person could do well so, also also with 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 mma you have a sample size and and you also you have a sample size and and time period problem so so if let's say number one you have you have to adjust also for competition so let's say you have the stats like that which is a little bit there's subjectivity in there and let's say a guy is has only four fights in the ufc Mm -hmm. in the past year but before that he was in pfl for a year Mm -hmm. or on the regional scene where you barely may even get any stats Right. So like, how do you judge? Like if you, if I told you, uh, this guy, uh, is, is, is 10 and oh, he has four wins in the UFC against low level fighters on the Dana white contender series, something like that. And his six previous fights for that were against guys that had losing records and his st- stats for that were 170 significant strikes and four knockdowns or something it's like well you're not gonna what are you gonna use that data for he's facing like the third ranked guy in the division now like and he's and he's a 7400 underdog like like what what are all those stats in the regional scene matter anymore right other than tell you what kind of what style fighter he is but what do they matter and the four fights in the ufc you only have four fights worth of data and then let's say you have a guy that you have 20 fights worth of data in the UFC. Well, what does the data from seven years ago matter? Right. Right. Compared to how he fights now. Right. We see plenty. We see. I mean, there are guys. I mean, Marlon Moraes was like a tight was like, like what? Four years ago was like the title, the, the, the number one guy for the title. Like if you counted his like we, we had Edson Barboza last week. Imagine trying to, like, Edson Barbosa was a world beater seven years ago. So if you're taking that data into account, like, how do you adjust for the fact that he's lost the past three fights and he's pretty much washed up and he has no takedown defense? Like, how, like, like that data doesn't matter that much. You could regress it as much as you can, but, but you only have so many fights. Imagine doing a, especially in a, in a, uh, in a sport that's very binary. So picture golf. I compare it more to golf, maybe mm. not baseball or basketball or anything like that. But imagine having data of a golfer for only eight events. And, and the eight events are over the past three years. And he hasn't been in a golf event for four months. Right. Right. So it's not like you have like, oh, the past, I, the past 20 weeks of events, Right. No, you have 20 total events in golf of him playing golf in eight years. And the past four events, the last time that he took the course was four to six months ago. Right. And the other three were four months previous to that. Like, how would you how would you do a golf model based on that? You'd have no clue what the hell is going on. Right. You couldn't do that. Yeah. Right. But that's the main reason, James, where. When I looked and I I download I got all the the scoring on DraftKings since they started UFC, mm-hmm. and I got the betting lines 
the closing betting lines of all the fighters. So inside the distance, round one and, and the winning odds of all the fighters going back to when they started. Yeah. And then all I did was compare. I originally did 90 points and then I bumped it up to 100. And then once I did it to 100, I saw I had some data scraping. I had some data problems. I had some missing data. I wasn't looking to be perfect, James. Right. You know me. Just directionally accurate. Yep. Yep. And when I saw based on the data that I had that to a to a 90 point score, obviously round one finishing was one. Because it's impossible to get negative points. So you're going to score at least 90 in a first round finish. So that's why I didn't bother with 90. That's why I went to 100. So like at 100, round one is like 0.92 or something when I did it. This was like, this was over a year ago. And the inside the distance line was like 0.81. The money line doesn't matter that much. The money line was like 0.4. Yeah. Right. Most likely winning fighters typically score more than 100 points compared to losing fighters. But it doesn't say right whether or not whether or not the line's higher doesn't doesn't matter as much. Right. So once I saw that, I'm like, well, why why do I even care about anything else? Like there's there's no significant stress. I can guarantee you I didn't even have to look at it, that there's no other metric like strikes or takedowns or or efficiency or anything like that that would come anywhere close to point eight. Right, because point eight is very high for correlation. Yeah. yeah, super high. Right, so that's so that's why I built this. That's why I'm. That's the origin or origination of why I'm like, well, let me just make a spreadsheet where I just take take those numbers and compare it to ownership, and it's like uh, now I can build lines. And that's it. Go. Like to me, it's not. It's not per. This is not precise, but I guarantee you, it's really directionally accurate. That's all it needs to be. I. I mean, it's. I do the same thing with golf and like you mentioned golf and I do the same thing. I just take the Vegas odds or like the sportsbook odds. I use offshore and I put together a way for us to measure one, uh, the, the chances of players finishing as the top overall finisher, top five, top 10, top 20, and top five is the best for GPPs because you need at least like three guys in the top five in order to win in a GPP. So we measure that against their salary and against their overall world golf ranking. And like, there you go. If you can have somebody who rates well, is a good golfer, has good chance to be a top five overall scorer and is priced effectively. So not priced over their chances of being a top five overall scorer, then you can build good lineups with that. And like, you don't need to do that much more. You don't need all the different shot tracking data. You don't need putting data there's so much of golf that one is sample size stuff and and competition different stuff where if a golfer has a a number one finish like they win a tournament against scrubs right and then they go into like the players or something players tournament and now they're facing the best of the best of the best like that number one finish over in this tournament does not matter literally at all like these guys are now up against significantly tougher competition but if you can take the sportsbook aggregate data and put that together and find leverage based on their chances to actually finish the tournament at a high point, you don't need anything more than that. I think that there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sports that you don't actually have to know that much about the sport. Esports is another one where like you can use winning data, you can use Vegas data. And since it's so binary, if, as long as you have winners, that's all that matters. So putting together models, people want to be, it's the difference between being accurate and being precise. What matters is being accurate. It doesn't matter if you're precise. What matters? Well, well, well. Hold on, hold on. I, I, I want to put in the caveat in there. When you are building models that you do not have clean data, you want. But I even want. No, I even want to add add a little bit to that also. Okay. Right, that that in overall, that being more precise only matters if everyone else is playing accurate. Is that is that, that a better like, sure. yeah. If it, yeah. if it came down to me on this model, on this, if you want to call it a model, it's not a model. Uh, for me to be more precise on this, and like, if I wasn't going to be profitable doing it this way, that means the field strength is so high that may not even be worth playing, that you're not even going to be right. able to beat the rake. So, like, that's why, like, directionally accurate beats most people, beats average players. Yeah. But at the highest level, you the more and more precise you'd rather be. 
So if I was in, if I was in a, in, in a contest with other, with, with the other top MMA DFS players, like being more precise will make a difference enough that it's worth me trying whether or not it's worth the rake is a different story. But when, and when I look up in this MMA, in the large field MMA contest, uh, James, there were 3,000 blank entries. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> That's a lot. Right. And if I take a look at if I take a look at this, I could go here in results DB and look at duplicates. Here are lineups that were duplicated. Here's one that was duplicated 226 times. Including users that did it multiple times. Right. Here's a lineup that was duplicated 165 times. Here's a lineup that 104. Right. And they're very straightforward lineups. I take a look and I go, OK, I understand this lineup. I don't know why this line, this lineup specifically, like Yousef was not like this lineup. I don't know why was duplicated 165 times. Just looking at the, the people in it. Yeah. But it was. But we look at look at how many dupes these are, like 81, 78, 77. Like these are the lineups that you avoid. You avoid like the plague. This is where your edge comes from. People building, and we take a look, and they're all they're all like 50k type of lineups, right? High ownership. Now, obviously, sometimes I make mistakes, and I get some of these lineups in my 150 build, but for yeah. the most part, I don't. So, this, like, this is where the edge comes from. So, it's like, do I need to be precise when people don't mind playing lineups that are going to be duplicated? I mean, look at the total. I try to avoid lineups that are duplicated like 20 plus times, right? I mean, I'm looking for under five, but even 20 plus, look how many lineups are 20 plus. Yeah. And they make up so much of the field. Look, 226, if I add these all up, 226 plus 165, that's around 400, 500, 600, 700, 800. I mean, like we go down the line, just 20 plus dupes. We're talking about What? 2,000, maybe two, two, 3,000 lineups that are mega duped. Yeah. Out of uh, 29, out of almost 30,000. Right. There are 8,061 unique lineups in this contest. Mm -hmm. Right. You can make them. So, like, this is where the edge is. This is why I say, like, I don't mind pushing my edges in MMA, even though I, most of these guys I have, I don't even know what they look like. I only know what they look like when they, oh, okay, that's the guy that I have a lot. Oh, maybe that wasn't a good eye. Sometimes I look and I go, I can't believe I have a lot of that guy. Uh, and that, De oh, Devin's in the chat. Devin's like three. Yeah, there was, it's, uh, I didn't look, I didn't check, but I, uh, but uh, someone in, in Discord said, like you download, I mean, obviously I could check. They said there were three. Obviously, they, because this is a, pay, it was a pay per view slate. Yeah. Yeah. So they do the satellites and stuff. And maybe they give away tickets or who knows. But there were 3,000 blank entries. Yeah, yeah. 3,000 blank entries, that's 10% of the field. That's insanity. Right. I mean, that, that's half the rake. Right. So so in this type of environment, James, I think directionally accurate is, is still pretty profitable. Absolutely. I mean, you're showing that it is. I right. Well, that's the whole, that, that's what, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and when, when I was saying that precise matters less, you're right. It matters more the, 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 the better the people are, the more accurate people are, the more precise you have to be in, in order to beat the accuracy. But for most, for, for a lot of sports where you don't have reliable data or you can't really model very well with the data that you have, I think that being accurate is more than enough because that's really the best that you can do. Uh, when you have like NBA being precise matters, right? Because people are accurate and precise in NBA. In in soccer, I think being directionally accurate matters more than being precise. Yeah, because definitely. You don't, have, you don't have reliable data. Nobody, nobody is building out super precise models for soccer because you just can't. Um, for NFL, I think NFL is one of the reasons why it is such a good DFS sport. Um, it's because... I think that you can do, I think you can approach it both ways because even though the data is very good for, for NFL now, um, it's better than it used to be. I still think that it is subjective and, and unreliable enough in ways based on the event scoring 
that you can still kind of put together things in a way that does not have to be precise and still find success. We have Alan Burns in the chat that uh, putting the probably probably the most uh, the most over uh, overrated better way of putting it. I don't want to just call that straight out wrong, but it's wrong. Uh, said he would look at course data for golf because they don't the courses don't change much, and the golfers are playing the course more than the other golfers. Like you'd have ten year old data, the course is the same, and you'd be in. I I, I hope my competitors. I don't play PGA DFS, but I mean, I used to for two years or whatever. Uh, course history is the, don't even bother, right? You you have a you, you do a PGA model, right? I do. Yeah, but you do, you be, you do it very similar to what I do in UFC, yeah. Yeah. right? But uh, but but back when I was playing PGA DFS, people saw it like they did. I remember this, there was one course, like what the Colonial, like Luke Donald did yeah. great on that course, or what? Like. But what happens if he's bad now? Like you can't go by like course history at best, at best. You're looking at something of a golfer from 52 weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Right. And then a golfer from 104 weeks ago. Then a got like the golfer from five years ago is not the same golfer as he is now. There are probably people uh, in the players field. Uh, that I could look and I go, oh, I remember when that guy was a $10,000 golfer, mm -hmm. like Ricky Fowler. What happened to that guy? Right. Right. So am I going to use, oh, well, Ricky Fowler did well five years ago on this course. Yeah, well, Ricky Fowler was a better golfer five years ago. Right. It has nothing to do with the course. He was just a better golfer. Yeah. Matt, Matt Kuchar. I don't know. I, I, all, all I know is there's some, there's some golfers now and there are also golfers that I look at and I go, that guy used to be a $6,600 golfer. Why? Why is he ninety eight hundred dollars this week? Because I didn't play for for a while, right? But it, because they're better golfers now. So looking at like the oh well, how did so and so do four years ago on this course? Well, how did he do in general four years ago? He was a horrible golfer four years ago. So maybe that's maybe he came in one hundred sixteenth place and shot eight over par because he was just bad back then. Yeah. Maybe it has nothing to do with the course. It was just bad back then. And then you also have just general form in general, right? Form is more predictive than course history. A guy, you'd rather play a golfer. It's more correlative. I'm not saying that it is the most correlative. It is more correlative if a guy that is now coming up to a course that they, he's played the past five years and never made the cut. Right. Never made the cut. Got all the all, all, all five times, but it's coming in on the best form. I'd weigh the form more than the court than the course. History. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and when I, I did actually uh, two years ago, I think I built out a PGA model that um, was actually like me trying to build a PGA model, not just using sportsbook information and course history you you would put it into the model and it would give you these guys that and and they get touted every single course it's like oh yeah this guy's really good on this course this guy's really good on this course right oh they're good at pete die courses right yeah, or something, something that like people that. adjust for that yeah so what and, happens the past three weeks he's been shanking balls over the trees i mean like yeah what what if he, what if last year he had an injured back like wouldn't like, and so he missed the cut. And so he was still rehabbing his back or something. And now right. he, he comes in and it's like, Oh, well, he missed the cut last year. He's never made a cut on this course. It, it doesn't matter when you would put it into course history. The, the thing that mattered most when you were looking at PGA two years ago for me in that model specifically was recent form. And that was it. Right. It was, Recent form, it was a combination of recent form and how bad they have been putting, which sounds- no, But putting is so variant that you almost can't even adjust for that. No, no, no. But it is so variant in the same way that uh, like a three-point shooter is streaky. And most guys will have a putting like average that they have in their career. Most guys, they'll be like within eight feet. Uh, they're like, they have like a 35% chance of making it or something across their career. Right. And you can measure that in the same way that three point shooters who are streaky have like a 39% three point shot. 
right? right? And if they're shooting badly, eventually, and I'm not saying that they are due, but we know that those that oscillation happens where you can see where they're going up or they're going down. So with golfers, one of the main things people do in PGA Showdown is look, okay, how badly did they putt the day before and right. hoping for that bounce back? You can do the same thing tournament by tournament. If their form is really good and their putting has been bad, you can look at that regressed against their career putting averages, and you can actually find guys who should be putting better and end up finding guys who do well in the next course. So it's recent form and how bad they've been putting and hoping for a regression from their pet putting to their career averages. That, that was what I found was best in my model two years ago. Right. Well, no, but that makes sense. That, I mean, that's, that's how I played PGA Showdown. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you that's essentially. You can do the same thing tournament to tournament. And, right. do and I don't know why. But that's more correlative than looking into anything else. I mean, yeah. sometimes you just find the stuff that just like in, in UFC in MMA where people are going, can, can, so when Kennedy, when Kennedy won, someone told me that was his first knockout since 2012. <laughs> okay. The guy's 42 years old. So essentially I played a 42 year old dude that hasn't had a knockout in 10 years. And he got a first round knockout. That's why someone said, oh, you're so lucky. It's like, if he was that, if we, if, if he was that lucky, why was his, why was his round one finishing odds at plus 650? He was 13%. That was one of the, if you take a look at this sheet, that's one of the lower numbers on this sheet. It's not like I had him like, oh, a high or anything, but like people, people think 13 plus 650 means it never happens. Mm -hmm. Right. So like like it's comparing that versus the ownership. If you told me Guido Canetti was twenty five percent owned yesterday or it's on Saturday, I would have barely had him. Right. So it's not a matter of what I think is going to happen. It's just comparing the chances of something versus the ownership, and that's it. Then Devin's in the chat. Devin, De- Devin, oh, he's playing. He's playing. He's playing MMA as you should. It's not complicated. I show you. I mean, dude, it's my second most. Uh, uh, James, it's now my second most profitable sport. And you've been playing for like two years? Less than, yeah, less than two, a little less than two years, right? You should be playing it, yeah. We should right. always- I, I've made more in MMA than I've been in soccer, and I've been playing soccer for six and a half years. But of course, there's no huge contest, and I, I did, you can't make 100K in one, one shot in soccer. Right. right. So I got NBA, and then MMA, and then, and then soccer. Mm-hmm. But it's not, but I mean, like, if you want to be competitive in, 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 in MMA, like this, this will take you, even if you didn't want to make a sheet like I'm making, like I'm making like this. If you just wanted to go, let me go to any sports book. It's all relative. So like, it doesn't matter. Go to DK Sportsbook. go to BetMGM. go to whatever. I use an offshore sports book, but that accepts a little bit more sharp money. So my lines are a little bit more precise. But just go and look look at the inside the distance lines on the fighters. Yeah. That's it. And then compare, change that number into an implied probability. And there are converters. You could just Google that. Odds converter, probability converter. And you could even want to do it that way. You could put it into Excel or you could just do it on the website. And then convert like Sadiq Youssef plus 190 is 34%. How much will he be owned? Right? You go to our, our ownership. Our ownership says 23% don't. So you go, okay, what's 34 divided by 23? And then that's a number. And then you just do that with every fighter. And then say, well, what fighters have higher numbers than others? Those are the ones that provide you with more relative value. And there you go. And then build lineups, right? And you'll have guys that project that that project high and are still high owned. You'll go, you'll, you'll have, you'll have sometimes where, oh, this guy's going to be 55% owned. Yet, when you but his inside the distance line is sixty two percent, so you're like, oh, he's actually underowned. Then you have underdogs where it's like, well, he's the best of the bunch, Terrence McKinney, but he's way overowned, right? So you just compare if you just did that. I mean, obviously, I'm weighing in a couple of other things, some projection stuff, right? I'm weighing I'm weighing the inside the distance round one and win, and win probability slightly differently. Right. I'm coming up with my own rating number, uh, which I can't give you the exact formula because then you'll have the exact 
then you'll start making my exact lineup. So that's that's like at least if you did it this way, your lineup will look very similar to mine, but maybe not exactly mine. Right, but maybe not exactly mine. So if you just did that, you 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 could absolutely be competitive in MMA DFS. That's it. I mean, if you want to make one lineup, three lineups, twenty lineups, hundred fifty, like that's there you go. You don't have to know anything. Just understand also that you're going to get burned. You're going to, you're going to lose ninety percent of the time. That's that. When it comes to DFS, that I think that that's the hardest thing for people to, for GPP players especially, to judge against. Yeah. Psychologically, I understand, right? I understand from an average person's perspective. I played poker for a long time, so I, I'm it, it's I'm hardened to. Oh, I, I have a 98% chance of winning this hand. Oops, I lost. Right, two percent chance half up up one outer up. Oops. I've seen that enough, right? So, like, to say, like, okay, you could play perfectly and lose nine out of ten slates seems counterintuitive to most people. But like I said, you're not looking for the most probable. You're trying to be the most profitable. I made $35,000 on Saturday after losing every MMA slate. I I don't think I've profited on an MMA slate. Let me me tell you, I'm going to bring up Rototracker. I want to. I want to. I want to see this. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to go to graphs, site, sport, MMA. Okay. So here's my MMA graph. Okay. So so this this these were profitable slates. That was a profitable slate. <coughs> my last profitable slate in MMA was November twentieth. Okay. Since then, since then I've played one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That was a tenth slate since then. Because obviously there was a month break between middle of December and January. Right. There was no MMA. So I lost nine slates in a row where I lost money. Right. And take a look, take a look at my entire graph. Right. This one says 51 days played. Okay. 51 days played $122,000 in profit. Okay. So 51 slates I've played over the past, since last, whatever, June. How many of those did I win? Did I profit in? Let's see. One. Is that a profit? No, that was a loss. So one, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine, ten. <coughs> Fifty-one slates. I've won ten. I've profited in ten of them. And out of the ten that I profited in, I won a lot in two. Well, three technically. This is this is one also. So I've won a, a decent, a good amount. Yeah. A hefty amount in three of them. So 10 out of 51 is what? That's 19%. So I've only profited in 19% of the slates that I played. And out of those slates, I've only won decently three out of 51. So that's 5.8% of the time. Right? So 95% of the time, I'm not, if I'm even profiting, it's not even, it's not even, or it's, it's almost, it's almost a loss in and of itself. It's not a big enough win to cover anything. Yeah. So 95%, 94% of the time, I'm, 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 I'm losing. Mm-hmm. Yet I'm up, uh, my ROI is 80%. There you go. Welcome to DFS. Welcome, welcome to DF. I mean, but psychologically for most people, like picture this red streak over here. Picture it, they go like this and they go, I'm pl- am I playing well or am I running bad? You could be playing well and your graph could look just like this. <clears throat> the thing is, is that I tweaked, I, I built, you know, uh, where on this graph do you think I built this uh, spreadsheet? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, bu- I built the spreadsheet right here. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then turned around. But I was essentially doing that type of process. Like I was trying to do that before. Yeah. But it just was too tough. I was just like, let me put it into Excel spreadsheet. But during this time, even after this, I mean, look at all of this. This is all downswing, 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 downswing. I mean, look, 120 down to 87. So one, what's 120 down to 87? At 43, uh, 33. 33. Yeah. Which means the 35 that I won yesterday, pretty much like just eliminated that entire downswing. There you go. Welcome to DFS. I mean, this is pretty much what I tell them when people are like, oh, I'm losing 90% of the time. I'm like, welcome to DFS. That's normal. Yep. That's all. But I'm gonna I'm gonna win every day in Madden Sims, though. I, I I'm almost done with the model. Oh, oh, okay. I thought I thought you were gonna I thought you were gonna tell me that you, you forgot about it. Nope, almost done with it. Okay. Um I finally found a way to to pull in all the data at once, which was really the biggest. <laughs> Like it was possible for me to go in and find individual players and like do that kind of thing. But that would have, that would have made the process completely just pointless for me. I wouldn't have done that. But now I have a list of every single team being pulled in and then I have a master list and then I have the, the, the DraftKings sheet being pulled in and I have ratings and I have averages and I have, I have all that stuff. So almost done with it, probably done with it by the end of the day. And then uh, I'll have to do is do a little bit of back testing and, take a look at things. I'm going to enter a, a contest today to, to see how much we have to correlate because I don't know if like, obviously it makes sense. Well, I mean, if we're playing, ca if, if we're playing cash games, I don't care that much. No, 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 no. But I, I mean, I want to see uh, if it matters as much as it does in, in real life football, which of course, intuitively it does, but like we're going into a, an unknown frontier here. So might as well back test it a little bit. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's almost done. I just have to figure out the right formula to put things together to get the the projections how I want them, and then uh, we're gonna we're gonna run some some Madden sims here, Jordan. We're gonna run them. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll pick that up at uh, paydirtdfs.com. Are you gonna put it up, or is yeah, this gonna yeah. be between us? Uh, I will put it up next week after you and I test some things. So I'll give it to you first, so that I can make sure that like it's not trash. And then as soon as we know, because it will be very, very good, uh, I'll put it up on the site. So I'll have Madden Sim projections on the site. And then, uh, yeah, people can get them at paydirtdfs.com. Um, I am running a promo right now because baseball's back, which we didn't even talk about today. And you and I love baseball. but yeah, I, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have time. We'll, it's we'll, we'll April 7th. We'll have plenty of time. Anyway, yeah, baseball's back. So I'm running a promo on the site. If you enter the code DOUBLEDONG, all caps, uh, check out, and you'll get $10 off the first month. So paydirtdfs.com and you can find me on twitter at paydirt underscore dfs and yeah yeah that's all and if you want to learn more concepts like we've talked about today me and james 15 hours long it's like a seminar structured education you don't have to go back to all of the these past episodes and watch this 500 hours worth of the show you go to theoryofdfs.com how to think like a professional dfs player the theory of daily fantasy sports game theory that applies to every sport. We have all these chapters here. Here's a table of contents. You can go pick it up and you can you, MMA. That's why people in the chat are like, Oh, are we going to talk about NBA or anything? It's a, it's a what nine, 10 game slate with the 1700 back to back. So like, who knows what happens today in NBA, but the concepts apply to playing DFS in any sport. Everything we've talked about applies to NBA as well. Right. The concepts are still the same, what, what you're trying to do in daily fantasy sports. So go to theoryofdfs.com. Uh, give those, uh, those thummy thumbs. Thummy thumbs on your way out the door. Hit the subscribe button if you're new here. Hit the notification bell to know when we go live. Grinders Live NBA. If you want the NBA stuff, Grinders Live, 5, 5, 5 o'clock, around 5 o'clock, 4.45, something like that. They change the schedule all around. I don't know when they when any. You'll see. You'll see the thumbnail. You'll hit the notification bell and you'll know when they go live and then crunch time for premium members. It, it should be a, probably a stupid, it's going to be a stupid it's tonight on NBA. I expect st stupidity and I'm, pr I'm probably going to play it anyway uh, because I'm, I'm stupid. Cause why not? Why not? There's four, there's what there's four late games. Uh, yeah. Maybe I don't, maybe I don't, maybe I don't want I mean, it's uh, this slate. Right, because look, most of the games are late. I mean, like it's a one one game at seven, two seven thirty, 
one at eight, one at eight thirty, and then a 10, 10, 10, 10, 30. Ugh. Late swap city. If you're not willing to late swap, don't play today, but uh, they'll be covering it later uh, here on Roto Grinders uh, premium Roto Grinders premium. Feel free to sign up for that. I'm always in the discord rotogrinders.com slash discord. And, uh, and I'll see you guys. See you guys tomorrow. Answering your DFS strategy questions as always on the DFS pregame show on rotogrinders.com. <laughs>